0: a great privilege to be here to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Before we turn to uh, Galatians chapter 4, we'll take a moment just to pray and ask the Lord to uh, bless our time in His Word. Uh, Lord, we come to you this morning asking that we will come uh, in tremendous humility before you and your Word. Uh, Lord, we ask that the Spirit of God go before us. Uh, Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God will remind us and reveal to us, maybe for the first time, the power of our resurrected Savior. Uh, Lord, we ask that as we study through, uh, continue our study through the book of Galatians, Lord, that you would be uh, reminding us uh, with every word of the great freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, Lord, we praise you because you have set us free. The question is, are we choosing to submit by grace through faith and living in that freedom every day? Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to continue where we left off uh, about two weeks ago. If you're joining with us on campus this morning and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1076, 1076. We've been talking about uh, the gospel of grace, and God's amazing grace is so important uh, to the life of the believer. Not just uh, grace at justification, meaning our sins are forgiven. Uh, but grace all throughout. There's a lot of process that happens on this journey of faith, and we need God's grace each each step of the way. And what Paul has been doing through the book of Galatians, be reminded that this is more than likely uh, his first writing that he had given to one of the churches, uh, the churches that were in the province of Galatia. Remember, it was Barnabas and and, uh, Paul that were set out on that first missionary journey uh, from Syria of Antioch, and they began their journey uh, there to share the gospel, and because people received the gospel, and most importantly, received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, uh, lives were changed, uh, churches were planted, and they began uh, an amazing work there in churches in the, the Galatian province. But shortly after Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch of Syria, uh, these false teachers began to come in. And again, it wasn't a flat-out denial of Jesus. And I think that is so important to understand because you and I, for the most part, will recognize if there's a complete denial of Jesus. Red flags all over, right? But we also need to have tremendous red flags that begin to raise when it's Jesus plus something else. And what we have been discovering all throughout this book and what we will continue to discover is that Jesus plus anything else is slavery, right? But Jesus plus nothing else is gospel freedom. And that's what Paul has been addressing all throughout this letter. To the point where he reminds uh, the the Christians there in Galatia, remember, for the most part, they were Gentiles, right? They did not have Jewish ancestry, Jewish tradition, Jewish heritage. They didn't have all those things. But the same gospel that has the ability to save the Jew is the same gospel that has the ability to save the Gentile. Right? And Paul begins a historical case study of it's not Jesus plus works, it's Jesus plus nothing else. Why do we know? Because you go back to Abraham. Abraham was justified how? Not by works, but by faith. You go to Moses when the law was given. Moses himself was justified how? By faith, not by works of the law. And because this is true, we look at Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He kept it perfectly. And he was the perfect sacrifice. And we hear this gospel truth in uh, Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. This beautiful reminder and truth that we are adopted as sons into the family of God. And sons is extremely important, not because uh, the gospel is anti-female, but sonship in this particular culture, specifically Old Testament language, was that's the one. The son was the one who inherited all the rights in the family. And guess what? Because of Christ Jesus, we have been united with Christ. We've been united together. We have been united into God's family and the same rights and resources that Jesus Christ himself has as the Son of God. You and I have the same resources and those same rights. Right? That's beautiful. But here's the reality. No matter how true that is, and that is true for every follower of Christ here today, not just 2,000 years ago, but today and continuing on until Jesus comes back, the Galatians, the believers in Galatia were beginning to turn back, right? They were beginning to abandon the beauty of the gospel of grace and turning back to uh, legalism, meaning works that I have to somehow earn or secure or deserve uh, my standing before the Lord. And here we see in verses 8 through 20 this morning is is Paul's passionate plea, Paul's passionate pain, and Paul's passionate burden and purpose for the church. And let's read it together and then we'll begin to unpack it. In Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it. Was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Man, this is great emotion by the Apostle Paul, great urgency by the Apostle Paul. And what we're going to find in our passage this morning is three characteristics that Paul uh, uh, has for the church, his, not only his love for the Lord, but his love for the body of Christ. And I believe that you and I, as followers of Christ today, should exhibit these very same characteristics. And what are they? First, every disciple's plea. Every disciple's plea. That's the first characteristic. In other words, when we see a brother or a sister in Christ going the wrong direction, we should, with great passion and emotion and urgency, plea for them to do what? To return. And that's exactly what was happening in the early church. They were returning from the gospel. They were moving away from the gospel of grace, and Paul's passionate, urgent, emotional plea is return return back to the gospel of grace. And he starts, I love how Paul addresses this, he starts with where they used to be and where they are now, right? Who they are now. So listen to what he says in verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. In other words, before you knew God, before you came into a relationship with God, prior to salvation, prior to your adoption as sons into his family, you were enslaved to the idols, the false gods of this world, those things of this world, those idols that you turned to. Those things enslaved you. Those things held you captive. But there's only one true God. There's only one God that sets you free. There's only one God that gives you great freedom. In fact, when the apostle Paul is addressing this in the churches in Corinth, he says this in First Corinthians chapter eight, verses five through six: For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through him through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, keep in mind that the new believers in Corinth would understand exactly what Paul was addressing here. In Corinth, there was a plethora of many, many false gods that they once used to worship, and they were getting ready to go back to that. They were idolizing these things that once they were captive to, Christ has set them free from that, and guess what they're doing? They're going right back. And the same was true for the Christians in Galatia. They, too, were submerged and surrounded by so many idols and false gods prior to salvation. But then, when the gospel was preached, the gospel was shared, and the gospel was received by grace through faith, they were set free from those things. And now, all of a sudden, you have these false teachers coming in, sprinkling a little Jesus in there, but heaping on works of the law, and guess what was happening? They were going right back to these false things. But Paul says, don't just remember who you used to be. Listen, remember who you are right now. He says in verse 9, the first part, he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. In other words, Christ changed everything, right? The scripture talks about knowing It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's, hey, Christians in Galatia, you have personally experienced the resurrected Lord. You have personally experienced a personal relationship with Him. And that is key. And that's what brings true life. Personal relationship with the Lord. If you want a definition of eternal life, that is exactly it. It is a personal relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ. In fact, when Jesus is praying to his Father right before the crucif- his crucifixion in John 17, verse 3, he gives us the very definition of eternal life. He says, and this is eternal life, okay? What is it? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. To know God in a personal And the beauty of eternal life is this, that it is secured in Christ, right? It is secured in Christ. It is to be enjoyed now. Eternal life begins now for the believer. And eternal life is a gift, not a reward, right? We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. Eternal life is a gift that God has given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. But here's the beauty. Paul wants to remind the the, the Christians in Galatians, he wants to remind us today, that it's not just who you know. It's more importantly, it's who knows you. And that's what he says. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. How many of us have been asked by maybe a child, this is where usually we get it, Dad, do you know so-and-so? Or Mom, do you know and so-and-so? Yeah, I know him. Well, do you think you can introduce me? Well, I don't know him that well, right? The question is, does God know you, Right? So eternal life is knowing the Lord. But the beauty of eternal life is God first knew you. That is the gift of eternal life. When Paul speaks to the church in Ephesus, he says this. He says in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, see the movement of God, right? God takes the initiative in the relationship, and that's beautiful. He says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which we which He has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, we love God why? Because He first loved us. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel. He has set us free." by first setting his affections on us, on you, on me. That bondage of captivity is broken. And yet, that's why Paul has this amazing plea. Because the church, the Christians were returning back to the things that once slaved them. He says in the second part of verse 9 and verse 10, he says, how, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul asks a very personal and a very powerful question question, how is it based on who you already are in Christ can turn back to the worthless and meaningless things of this world? The very things that once made you miserable, the one, the very things that made you search and long for something more. How is it that, that you have this new identity in Christ and yet you're moving away from that? And here's the reminder to us, every single one of us as followers of Christ, we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love, right? every single one of us are prone to relapse to the things of the old life, right? And that's what Paul is addressing here. This is why every disciple's plea is what? To return, to return, to turn back to the Lord, to cherish Christ above all. In other words, when you are going the wrong way, you need a brother or sister in Christ to come alongside you and plead with you to return. And what were they turning to? This is amazing. Again, you have these Gentiles that had really no observance of Jewish customs. They come to faith in Christ. Those false gods have been, uh, the power of those false gods had been removed. And what are they turning back to? This is interesting. Verse 10, you observe, that word observe means with great care and passion, right? So you're really striving after these things. And what is, what are those things? You observe days and months and seasons and years. What are those things? Those are the things that the Jewish people would observe, right? So keep in mind, here's what's happening. They turn from their idolatry of false gods, right? Now they're turning to the idolatry of religious activity. Do you see that? This is important for us to understand. That just because you get rid of one idol doesn't mean another idol is not going to come in its place. So it didn't matter if you were worshiping false things or cherishing false things, false gods, or you were embracing religious activity in order to somehow be right with God? Both of those in them in the end is what? Is slavery. And that's what Paul was trying to remind him of. Paul is saying, listen, you you already, you are already fully loved and accepted and cherished by the Father. You don't need to observe these things in order to be right with God. Now, again, the importance is this. It's not the fact that they were observing these Jewish holidays or these feasts. Or, or all these different things. Again, the issue is not that they were observing these things. The issue is why they were doing it. They were observing these things thinking that they would be right with God. Right? It's kind of like when Easter and Christmas rolls around. Right? Listen, if you come to church on Easter and Sunday just to somehow think that that's going to give you better position with the Lord, you've missed the whole point of why we observe Christmas and Easter in the first place. Every holiday that we observe as followers of Christ is in no way trying to make us more right with God because we can't. It is because we are celebrating the faithfulness of God in redemptive history, right? And this is what Paul addresses. He talks about uh, days and uh, special meals in the Christian church. Uh, He talks about this in Romans 14. Listen to what he says. And and understand the significance of these verses. The point is, are you honoring the Lord in the midst of it? That's what the point is. He says one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it, what? In honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So again, it doesn't matter if you're observing certain things or not observing certain things. What is the point? The point is, are you honoring the Lord in what you are doing, or are you honoring the Lord in what you are not doing, abstaining from, right? That's the key. So in other words, it's not Jesus plus something else, it's Jesus plus everything. That is where our gospel freedom is. And what does he say in verse 11 and 12? He says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And he says, Brothers, I entreat you. I plead with you. I beg of you. I hurt for you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now when Paul says, become as I am, he's not being arrogant in any way. If anyone knew the slavery of religious activity, it was the Apostle Paul. And he says, listen, I want you to become as I am when I came to you. I did not have Jewish law on my mind when I came to you. I had the grace of the gospel on my mind when I came to you. And remember, when I came to you first, you absorbed the gospel grace like it was the first thing and that you needed in life, right? The very thing that you needed. You were absorbing it time and time again. Go back to that day. Go back to when you were Resting in the gospel of God's amazing grace. And that is his plea. And that should be our plea as well. We, as followers of Christ, should be on the shoreline, crying out, danger, danger. You're going the wrong way. The question is, is that our plea today? As followers of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, disciples of the Lord, do we have that gospel hunger? To plead with our brothers and sisters in Christ to return to the centrality of the gospel of grace? Or are we, like these false teachers, heaping on religious activity after religious activity? The second characteristic that we see in the Apostle Paul is every disciple's pain. Every disciple's pain. One of the realities of being a father of Christ on this earth is that pain is there when you are journeying with the Lord, right? How many of us experience the pain of being a disciple? Every single one of us, if we're a true follower of Christ, there is pain in that walk with the as a disciple. When we are ministering to other believers, there are going to be some pains that are exhibited. And Paul addresses too in this passage. First, the pain of weakness. The pain of weakness. And guess what? Paul not only acknowledged his weakness... But guess what? The Galatians also knew that Paul had a weakness. We see this in the second part of verse 12 and of verse 14. The scripture says, you did me no wrong. This is what Paul says. "You You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. In other words, when Paul first met them on that first missionary journey, they met him not at his best, right? They met him at one of his greatest times of weakness. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, we don't know exactly what that bodily element was. Some will say it's, it was malaria, and because of uh, the effects of malaria, he began to lose his eyesight. Uh, it's possible that because of the persecution that the Apostle Paul was facing, that he was so dismembered in appearance that he, he literally looked repulsive. He was almost like, we, don't, we can't stand the look of you, Paul. And if you look at that first missionary journey, it's interesting that they, they head out west, and then all of a sudden, there's this sharp turn north. Is it possible that in Acts 13 and 14, this bodily ailment began to settle in and that's why they went north to get recovery? We don't know. All we know is that it was almost repulsive. It was pretty bad. Verse 14, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. They did not reject him. They did not treat him badly. The the phrase there uh, talks about, you did not spit on the ground when I came by. Right? I was not so insulted by your presence that I did not turn my back on you. But received me as what? As an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now understand what the Judaizers were doing. If you were uh, an apostle in the first century church, one of the gifts that God gave you was the ability to heal, right? That was one of the signs of apostleship in the New Testament church. And you can imagine, and it makes sense that the Judaizers would go in and say, are you, are you really going to trust what Paul is saying to you? Are you truly going to buy into this gospel of grace? Are you truly going to buy into the fact that it's Jesus plus nothing? Listen, we're not saying it it's, doesn't require Jesus. Yes, it does, but it's more than that. How is it that you can trust the Apostle Paul and what he is sharing if he, as an apostle, can't even heal himself, right? And that makes sense. But what the scripture reminds us of is that though the Apostle Paul had a weakness, whatever it was, he had the Lord on his side. And what attracted those Galatians to Paul? Not his appearance, not his charisma, not his ability to work a crowd, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And that's exactly what he needed. So there's the pain of weakness that we see in the Apostle Paul. And it says that they received him, that is, they they welcomed him in. That's beautiful language. But there's also another pain, and that's the pain of telling the truth. He says in verse 15, What then has become of your blessedness? In other words, where has your wonder of God's grace gone? Right? You used to be in awe of God's amazing grace. Now, you're kind of apathetic to it. You're kind of callous to it. What, who stole that from you? He says, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So these early believers had had such a love for the Lord and a love for Paul that they would have sacrificed Anything and everything to make him better. We say in our day, man, I'll give you the shirt off my back, right? But where did it go? He says, Have then have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So here we are. At one point, they're at the point of sacrificing everything for the Apostle Paul because of the amazing grace of God. Now, because of these false teachers and they're buying into what they're teaching and turning away from the gospel of grace, where they once received Paul. Now they're not only rejecting him, but they're, he's an enemy now. They're turning their backs on him. And Paul is confused. He's heartbroken. You know, for the Apostle Paul, when Pastor Appreciation Month came around, listen, he didn't give no gift card. He got a stiff arm, right? Like, get out of here. And you can feel the weight of the Apostle Paul. And here's what we need to be reminded of. When we lose sight of the wonder of God's grace towards us and in us, we will not want to hear the truth and apply God's truth where it is most needed. And that's exactly what was happening here More than turning our back on the Apostle Paul, they were actually turning their back on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So how do we address the disciples' pain, right? Maybe you're here today and you recognize there's weakness. Listen, if you don't, there is weakness. And maybe you're here today as a follower of Christ, you don't uh, recognize the pain of telling the truth. Listen, there is great pain in telling the truth. And how do we address those two things? We address them with the grace that is found in the gospel. Consider weakness for just a moment. Paul, again, understood his weakness. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see uh, the weakness that Paul had. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that it was there, the scripture says. uh, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelation. So Paul saw things that we don't see, right? He saw the, the heavens, right? He saw the beauty of what was there. And in order to not make him boastful and conceited in himself, the scripture says a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, And then it says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So there's a weakness there. God, take it away. God, take it away. God, take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. Listen, as a follower of Christ, you will receive the unrelenting attacks of Satan. You will be reminded time and time again of your weaknesses, but take heart. Where we are weak, God's grace. God's grace is far stronger. What about the pain of spreading the word of God, telling the truth? Listen, God's truth is not always popular, but it is absolutely necessary, right? And when Paul speaks to young Timothy to encourage him, again, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, these are the last writings that we have of him. And, and what is on his mind? The truth of the gospel. He tells young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 and 5, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete uh, patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mist. As for you, Always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Listen, I don't, I don't just think that that itchy ear syndrome is for the world. I think that's also happening in the church. That we have itchy ears within the church. And Paul says, Timothy, be faithful to the word of God. And it's a reminder to us. We need to be humble every single day so that we can receive the truth that is found in God's word. I love what David says in Psalm 141. He says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness... Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. How many of us in our pride refuse the word of God from another brother or sister in Christ? We need to be humble before the Lord. So we have every disciple's plea, every disciple's pain. Lastly, every disciple's purpose. Purpose. Why the plea? Why the pain? What's the purpose? He tells us in verses 17 through 20. And listen to how he begins. He says in verse 17, they, that's the false teachers that we've been talking about, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. And so Paul says you have these false teachers coming in and, and they, they make much of you. They have great zeal, They have great passion. They, they, they take on the persona that they actually care about you. But did you hear what Paul says? That they're, not, they're not there for you. They're not there to, grow, to, to motivate you to grow more and more in your walk with the Lord. They're, they're there for themselves. He says they want to make much of them. The scripture says that they shut you out. Their desire is to drive a wedge between you and the Lord, that fellowship that you have. And Paul says in verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Paul's not against passion. Paul's not against being zealous. Paul's not about being persuasive, but he's, he's against being passionate about the wrong things, right? And these teachers were coming in, and again, their, their goal was not so that you would follow Christ. Their goal was that you would follow them, right? That was their goal. And so any carrot that they could dangle over you, if it be works of the law or uh, license in living, whatever it is that your ears wanted to hear, they would give it to you in order to gain a following. And Paul says, listen, not only do I want you to walk in the grace of God as you did when I was with you, while I'm away, I want you to walk in the same power of God's grace as well. Don't let them shut you out. Don't let them shut you out. Why is truth so important. The Apostle John, speaking of truth in 1 John 5, listen to what he says. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may what? We may know him who is what? Who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God in eternal life. In other words, when we walk in the truth of Jesus Christ, There will be no greater joy, no greater peace, no greater approval, no greater love than that right there. In other words, why do we keep trying to go to cheap imitations that will never satisfy us? Why is it important to keep truth before you? He says in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I love the way the New Living Translation translates it. It says, dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Keep in mind, John is in his 90s. I mean, he is on the verge of martyrdom, right? And what does he say? He says, my heart, my passion for you is to what? Is to walk with the Lord. That is my burden for you. Let Christ be magnified. And the same purpose and passion that John had, the Apostle Paul has, he says in verse 19 of Galatians 4, my little children, there's that language again, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth, underline this phrase, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul reaches to a place that I can't really fathom, the pain of childbirth, right? He goes there. He says, like a mother is going through the pain of birthing her unborn child, I am going through the pain of reminding you of who you are in Christ. Paul is laboring for his brothers and sisters in Christ, that great burden to continue to grow in the Lord, to be reminded that the only hope that we have is in Christ Jesus. It reminds me of shortly after uh, Jesus resurrected, uh, he's on the road to Emmaus, right? We just saw a study coming up on that. And there, uh, these two disciples, they're walking down the road to Emmaus and uh, they're struggling, right? They're trying to come to grips with everything that's happening, right? I mean, Jesus was just crucified. Uh, three days later, they They didn't know he rose from the grave. And on that journey, somebody joins them in the conversation. But they don't recognize who it is. Who do you think it was? It was Jesus Christ himself. And there, this discussion begins to happen, right? They're trying to figure out all these things. How is it that all these things fit together? And it's through that dialogue that, going back to the Old Testament and Moses and the prophecies and and what just transpired three days earlier, uh, that later on that night, they're sitting at the table, those three gentlemen, one being Jesus, And there they're breaking bread. And it's at that moment they recognize that the person that was with them the whole time, the person that was reminding them of the hope and reminding them of how redemptive history connects together was none other than Jesus Christ himself. And how did they respond? Luke 24, verse 32 says, And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What's the great purpose? That our hearts would burn for Jesus Christ. That the gospel itself would be the center of our mind and our thinking and our, and our actions. This is seen throughout all the early church leaders. We saw John. We, we see Paul. We, we're going to see Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. And again, Peter's getting ready to die. And he says this. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you. Again, who needs the reminder? We need the reminder. He says, to remind you of these qualities. What qualities? He just talked about that you have been given everything you need to participate in the divine nature of God, right? That's what he's reminding us of. Everything you need to be a healthy Christ follower, the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God has already given it to you. He says, though you know, that, uh, know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of what? Reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So in other words, he says, I'm getting ready to die. Verse five, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What is Paul's burden? What is John's burden? What is Peter's burden? Their burden, their purpose is what? That Christ be formed in them. That's why unity within the body of Christ is so important, to be unified the plea, the pain, and the purpose. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 13 and 14, until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to what? To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What's the heart? To grow, to mature. That's why the plea is so important. That's why Uh, Embracing the pain is so important. Why? Because there is a tremendous purpose. Remember the ministry of the church. Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 1, 28, 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that so powerfully works within me. Whose strength? It's not my strength. It's not your strength. Remember, we have weakness, right? It's the strength of the Lord working in us and through us. Is your passion today the great purpose of the church to present everyone mature in Christ? For every disciple's journey, there is a plea, there is a pain, there is a purpose. In other words, there are no shortcuts in being transformed by Jesus. Right? There is a work that he does in your life and in my life. But there is great gospel hope. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the disciples' plea, return. The d- disciples' pain, there's weakness, and there's pain in telling the truth, and the disciples' purpose that Christ be formed in you. So just evaluate a few things in your own life as a follower of Christ. If you're a mom or a dad, a grandparent, if you are. a brother, sister in Christ, which you will be if you're a follower of the Lord, if you're a life group leader, right? Every time you gather with somebody is is the goal, the purpose to see Christ formed in them. Listen, we don't have time to mess around talking about all these different things and not leave that gathering without Christ being magnified. The center of your conversations with your children, your grandchildren, with everybody that you have in contact with is to make Christ known. Why? Because that is our hope that is our future. That is our rest and our peace and our joy. It is Christ and Christ alone. So let us have a great burden to see people, followers of Christ, have Christ formed in them. The heart of a pastor, the heart of a follower of Christ is found in uh, the third epistle of John in verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Is that your great joy today? Again, this whole idea of every disciple's plea, every disciple's pain, every disciple's purpose is not fulfilled in you, it's not fulfilled in me. This message in no way is for you to sit down and say, okay, i got to do better in this and i got to engage in this and i got to give more to this. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you rest at the feet of Jesus. You, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, have the gospel burned so deeply into your heart that what comes out is a plea. What comes out? It is dependency on the Lord, his grace and the wits of weakness and the pain of telling the truth. And what comes out is the gospel purpose of desiring everyone to have Christ formed and shaped in them. It's not I, but Christ and me. It's not you, but Christ and you. So as we stand and sing, the altar will be open for you.